You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Many presume a hacker has technical skills and taps into computers and networks for nefarious purposes. But those who hack are not just threat actors with bad intentions. Hacks, by definition, are workarounds or shortcuts and can be applied to almost anything. A television remote control at one point in time was a hack that enabled its inventors to change channels without having to walk across a room and turn a dial. Hacks are everywhere flipping conventional approaches and tackling problems in new ways. That's what white hat or ethical hackers do while using their deep technical skills to stay out in front of the bad guys, to use another broad stroke playground term. Our guest today is Philip Wiley, whose new day job is Director of Services and Training at Skythe. He's got more than 25 years of IT and cybersecurity experience under his belt and is well-known and highly regarded in the hacker community. An offensive security professional and evangelist, ethical hacker, author, and podcast host are just some of the things he's known for. And before he made the switch to offensive security, he was, yes, a pro wrestler. And, spoiler alert, he wrestled a bear. Once. Our talk dives into hacking for good, how identity figures into penetration testing, and how his job can feel a lot like bear wrestling or something like that. Here's my conversation with Philip Wiley. Welcome to Trust Issues, Philip Wiley, newly minted Director of Services and Training at Skythe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So by way of background, you're an offensive security professional and evangelist, an ethical hacker, a best-selling author, a podcast host. You've got your own podcast called The Philip Wiley Show. Um, that's probably not a surprise to you that you've got that. You've taught at the college level. You've been and done a lot of other things along the way. And I encourage listeners to take a look at your LinkedIn. There's a lot to take in there to sort of get back to where you are now. Could you take us through a quick tour of your career journey? And I don't use the word journey lightly because I know it's somewhat overused, but in the case of your career, it it seems like a, a fitting word. So yeah, I, I started as a sysadmin first six years of my career. I'd kind of moved over from CAD drafting. CAD drafting is where I found out about IT, uh, taught myself how to build computers, took a Novell Network operating system course. It was like the the de facto uh, network operating system of choice back in the 90s, barely into the early 2000s. Once Microsoft came out with Active Directory, then they pretty much took over the market share and and I don't even know that Novell even exists anymore. But I worked in that and, and, and for about six years as a sysadmin and I got interested in security. I took the CISSP exam, passed it, really got interested in the security side of things from one of my former coworkers. He was going that direction, sharing information with me. And so I thought this sounds like a cool area to go into. So as a sysadmin for six years, uh, went into being a network security analyst in like January of 2004. And so there I worked for about a year and a half. The company hired a a new CISO. He had a more modern idea and approach to security teams. 
So at first we were all doing the same thing. We're all doing firewall intrusion detection, some vulnerability scans, some risk assessments. So when this new CISO came in, he divided us up into groups and he put me on the AppSec team. So there I got to manage third-party pen tests with, with vendors that were doing the pen tests for us, as well as run some vulnerability scans. Uh, and so I really got interested in, in pen testing from that. I took a couple of courses and then in 2012, I got laid off and I applied for a role at Verizon in their consulting security consulting division as a pen tester. And that's kind of where I got my start. I spent the first five years as a consultant doing uh, network pen tests, wireless pen test, application pen test. And then I got tired of all the travel because back then, this was around 2017, I think when I made the move out of consulting. But back then, people really weren't sending out drop boxes to do internal tests. It was all usually on site. Uh, some of the consulting companies had more of the old school mentality of someone needs to be on site. You need a representative of the company to be there, but that's kind of shifted. So I went to work for US Bank, worked there for a while and for Kimberly Clark as a red team lead. Uh, I managed the red team there. I spent a year just teaching for a couple different companies offering offensive security training and then kind of got back into pen testing. And then last year I'd made the shift to, to the vendor side. So I worked for a couple Israeli companies and that's when I got an evangelist role dealing more with marketing. And so my current role now, I kind of help out with marketing, but more of it is the services side, managing the services for our customers, as well as training our internal staff, as well as training customers on our product. We do a lot of purple team workshops, just kind of show people the uh, strengths and advantage of purple teaming. So that's where I came from. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that tour. And, and you gave us sort of the the IT cybersecurity tour there, but there is a portion uh, of your career that came before that. And actually, when we asked Andy Thompson, who's um, CyberArk Labs offensive security research evangelist and friend of the show, when he suggested you as a guest, he also mentioned that at one point you pursued a professional wrestling career, which then may or may not have parlayed into joining the powerlifting pro circuit. But needless to say, this caught our attention how did all that come to be? And how did you eventually find your way from that into offensive security? Sure. And actually it was the powerlifting that led me into pro wrestling because whenever I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I graduated in 1984. So we had computers in school, but it wasn't something that, that a lot of students took those classes. So they had like an IBM lab and then some Apple computers in the art lab so it's one of the things I didn't have experience with back then. Uh, I didn't have the advantage of that. But when I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my friends, since I was a big guy and powerlifter, they said, you should go into pro wrestling. So that sounded really interesting to me. So I went to wrestling school and wrestled for, you know, a couple of years. I spent probably about three or four years in it, kind of going to wrestling school and then getting into it. But during that time, I was working as a bouncer in a nightclub because I didn't make enough money wrestling. I wasn't wrestling full time. I was lucky to wrestle once a week mm -hmm. at one of the local circuits here in Dallas, the WCCW. Some people that heard of the Von Erics, that's the Von Erich family was very popular here. So I wrestled there. And so, uh, like I said, I didn't make enough money doing that. So I had to have a day job or actually a night job because I was working as a bouncer in a nightclub. And one of the stories I like to share, and, and I like to share this background because people wanting to get into cybersecurity may think I can't do this. But when you see someone as this former meathead powerlifter <laughs> pro wrestler, 
turned pen tester, I like to prove to others it can be done. And that's kind of the heart of what I do to try to encourage people. So on my slide deck, when I'm doing anything related to getting into pen testing, I share a slide with one of my wrestling pictures and also me wrestling a bear. Because when I worked in the nightclub, they had an event where they brought in this wrestling bear. And since I was <laughs> a part-time pro wrestler, they kind of used me to market the event. And so I actually wrestled the bear. So I've seen the picture and I can't believe you're alive to tell the story. Um, <laughs> did you have any sort of hesitation about potentially wrestling a bear? And, and what was the actual experience like compared to what you were envisioning going into it? Yes. It's like, I, I really wasn't apprehensive about it. It, it was the bear was tame. He's just like a big dog. And <laughs> so when I got in there, I just didn't realize how difficult it was going to be because when I was trying to wrestle this bear, uh, I was kind of fortunate that I was the one that went last. So I was able to learn from the other's mistakes. They were standing upright, trying to wrestle the bear. They would kind of lock up with the bear, you know, grabbing hold of the bear, trying to take the bear down and the bear would grab their legs and take them out, take it out from under them. So in the picture, you can kind of see that I'm in a type of defensive lineman stance or wrestling stance, got my feet out. So my center of gravity would be more advantageous for me and make it more difficult for the bear to take me down because my legs were too far out with those short limbs. He had to reach out to try to grab me and he just, he wasn't able to take me down. So it was an interesting experience. I mean, it was amazing. It was like trying to move a parked car. It was just really hard to, to get that bear to, to go down. But in hindsight, it's probably a good thing because at that point, no one had ever taken that bear down. Uh -huh. <laughs> so what happens to the first person that takes that bear down? You know, even though it's tame, it's not like you're domesticated cats and dogs. This has been years or centuries of domestication and they don't freak out like that. But this animal was probably the first domesticated bear in his family line. And so it would probably revert to its animal instincts. And, you know, if I would have taken it down, it might've freaked out and I could have been injured. So fortunately that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, needless to say, you're, you're the first trust issues guest um, that we know of who has previously professionally wrestled and wrestled a bear. Other than it being a fascinating story, um, I think one of the reasons why I'm asking you about it is because it's interesting that you've made that, that transition from that kind of a career to where you are now. Are there any connections that you've seen between wrestling and offensive security? Yeah, some of the things that would help from wrestling and offensive security is the acting piece, because as everyone knows now, wrestling is, you know, the, I don't really like to use the word fake because some of the things that happen there are, are you know, you're getting uh, thrown around and, and some of the things that you can get injured, but it's a staged ending. So they know who's going to win. But one of the things I would say that would help, I didn't really get to do that enough because I was on the losing end. When you're starting out, you're what they refer, refer to as a job boy or a jobber. You know, you're going to get beat. You're going in to make the star look good because in these matches, they'll have several of these smaller matches and they kind of build up the, the stars where they go in and just beat the tar out of whoever they're wrestling. And, and that's it. So you make them look good. And then you got the main events where you got two of the stars actually wrestling. So if I would have had more experience in the area, the acting piece would have probably helped more with social engineering because mm. with social engineering, you're having to act. You got a pretext. You're trying to emulate some other type of person. It could be help desk. It could be a manager. It could be a third party that that's doing business with that company. So that acting part would have helped in being used to a crowd and, and stuff like that. You, your nerves should be a little 
uh, more calm in that type of situation. Really, really interesting. So more uh, current day, Philip Wiley, as mentioned earlier, you're an ethical hacker. And you know the word hacker is somewhat fraught in that there are a lot of preconceived notions or negative connotations that are often attached to it. Within your definition of hacking, how do you define a hacker and what does hacking mean to you? Sure. One of the things that I feel like we'd be doing injustice to the title of hacker if we didn't go back and mention the history. So originally this was people that were tinkerers. They were technical people. Uh, you know, think back to Apple, the forming of Apple and, and Dell computers. Some of these type of uh, products were born out of someone's garage, someone building products or people learning how to extend the functionality of products. And so the media was really the one that coined the term hacker as far as trying to, as far as breaking into computers. Uh, the media kind of gave it that term and it's kind of stuck. And when you think about it, the media has such, such a great reach. So you're in television printed media. You've got such a big reach, a lot more than the voices are going to protect the, the name of the hacker. But a lot of us in the industry have kind of embraced it. And it can be used for good or bad. It's funny that a lot of times when someone asks me what I do for a living, the professional term is pen tester or penetration tester. I will usually tell them I'm an ethical hacker thinking that's a more understandable uh, term for it. But I've had many people ask me, is there such a thing as an ethical hacker? But one of the things that I look at too is there's locksmiths. They could pick locks. They could break into safes. They could use it for bad, but most of them don't. So it's the same thing with ethical hackers. The term ethical hacker is the function of trying to hack into something in an ethical manner. You're trying to break into it. You've got permission to try to hack into that target. But ethical hacking is something used during a penetration test. So they're not actually equals. If ethical hacking is the function of actually hacking into the target penetration testing is you're going in, you're following a, a certain methodology, you're documenting that in a report. It's usually wider in scope than just ethical hacking. Eth ethical, ethical hacking is the action in penetration testing. Other terminology good to use with that is we're emulating threat actors, you know, mm, real world right. uh, threat actors, bad guys that we're emulating that. On a pen test, you're not exactly emulating specific threat actors, you're using those different types of skills to try to test the security of something. There are assessments that are red team operations or adversary emulation where you're actually trying to emulate an actual threat actor. You're trying to go undetected. On a pen test, you're so limited for time, you don't have that luxury. With penetration testing or pen testing, how are identities used and, and what identities are used the most? If you're doing like a uh, assume breach or sometimes referred to as white box testing where you have access to the environment, sometimes you'll have a low level or normal user account that you're performing the testing with up to like an admin account. And usually you see that in web app pen testing, you want like an account for each level of access. And so with a assume breach where you're testing a network, you're just getting an average user. So you're going in seeing how they can, if they can elevate privileges, do lateral movement with that account. Because sometimes your endpoints are really hardened, you're really secure, and the only way someone may be able to break in is with an assumed breach type scenario. And some companies, they miss out on the opportunity because someone may not be able to just break in unless they find credentials. Sometimes it allow, they need some kind of access. So with 
the different access levels you have to consider, we have insider threats. We have nation state implants within organizations. When I used to work at this one company, we had a threat intelligence company. We got threat intelligence, some other services from, and they shared a story with a computer hardware company that China had actually implanted someone in their organization. And this was to steal intellectual property. And so sometimes people always think it's from the outside, but there's a lot of times it's, you know, nation state implants. It could be disgruntled employees. Uh, sometimes employees that aren't paid enough, they may sell their VPN creds to some malicious organization, some threat actor. Sometimes they'll sell these credentials because, uh, you know, they're disgruntled with the company or either they're just desperate for money. And also like as a pen tester or threat actor, a lot of times they're trying to gain privileged accounts, sometimes like domain admin, admin, or root on a Linux or Unix system. So how has pen testing changed in the last 10 years when it comes to identity? Yeah, the way it's changed is uh, one of the things that people are really relying heavily on because some of the environments have gotten more uh, secure and it's harder to get a foothold. So what a lot of pen testers do and threat actors is they try to harvest credentials, see what they can find. Sometimes you have developers that have like a spreadsheet with different accounts that they use for testing and it could be different level accounts. It could be, you know, user or admin level accounts, or they have it like in uh, a shared drive or cloud storage. And so a lot of the very successful pen testers, I know they'll go through looking for these credentials because they're not safely stored and use them to gain access to the environment. And sometimes, you know, people think some of these hacks are these really elite level hackers. And sometimes it's just a matter of they're not that highly skilled. They looked in the right places. If you're not practicing good hygiene, these are opportunities for someone. And it doesn't always take someone to be this really elite level hacker to get in. How do non-human identities figure into, into the whole equation? If you're talking about something like uh, YubiKeys or something to access passwordless type of authentication, uh, something in that realm could be used because that way now you can have these really long passwords. Someone's got a YubiKey or some type of hardware device they can access the system. And this is one of the things too, just even going back thinking to my sysadmin days to seeing how security's evolved is the management of uh, privileged access accounts, like different accounts. Back in the day, we called them firefighter IDs and we had like a locker in the data center that we had a key for that had like a username and password that we would go in if we needed uh, domain admin access, we would go access that. And that's what, how they had, and they would routinely be turned over. But nowadays you need something like privileged access management to be able to control those passwords uh, and also not giving people admin access. You've got admin accounts using things like sudo and the Linux and Unix world, or you know, run as in the Windows world where you can use these elevated accounts instead of using them full time. Because if you click on something as domain admin or root, then it's executing at that level. That threat actor has access at that level and they didn't have to crack a password or anything to get that. They just were able to get you to click on something and now they're running at your access. You run into this like on web servers because some cases a web app or web server is the only way to get into an environment because it's really secure, but the service account that's running on that system, if you're able to use some default creds for that system account to get access, now you're running at whatever level. And some of the big mistakes I've seen companies do is it's running it as NT system authority, admin, maybe even domain admin or root. And that just eliminates the need for privilege escalation 
for a threat actor, they're accessing that system at the highest level. You told me prior to today's conversation that offensive security is one of the most misunderstood areas of cybersecurity. How do you define offensive security and what are the different areas within offensive security and why is it so misunderstood? Sure. So offensive security uses threat actor TTPs and tools to assess the security of a system. Because if you're just running a vulnerability scan, you see the vulnerabilities from the outside, but you don't know what's possible unless you have access to that system. So during a penetration test, you're trying to gain a foothold. Once you gain that foothold, you're seeing if you can do lateral movement at the same level access, access other systems in that environment or do privilege escalation where you're able to elevate your privileges to another higher level and other post-exploitation type of activities is just seeing what kind of data you can access. Because I mentioned before, not all these hacks and breaches are elite level hackers. Someone with zero skills can go on the internet poking around and find sensitive data or gain access to a system. So with offensive security, you're using these different type of techniques. So with a penetration test, you're going in, finding all the vulnerabilities and trying to exploit all the vulnerabilities with a adversary emulation or red team, you're going in trying to go undetected. You're testing the endpoint systems. You're testing the reaction of the technology and the security staff. That's part of the test, not just the technology, not just the technical uh, weakness. You're also looking for the reactions uh, from the people as the capabilities to block. And so this is something good to be done with the pen test. Uh, along with the pen test, you just wouldn't really rely on just an adversary emulation because you're missing out a lot of vulnerabilities. It's something that needs to be done together. And there's another type of assessment called a security vulnerability assessment. And this is where you're running vulnerability scanners and then validating those findings and seeing if there's exploits for it, but you're not actually exploiting. So it's like a penetration test minus the hacking piece. And there's some instances where that's important. If you've got like a hospital, and I, I did a pen test one time for a hospital a Wi-Fi pen test. And when I was doing my scans, I saw all these medical devices in the ER that were connected. And so when I saw this, it just really was an epiphany to me. And I went back to the CISO and I said, you know, we really need to reevaluate this. I'm seeing these medical devices connected to the network. You know, they were just really wanting to see if someone could get on there. I was easily able to access that. But I went back to him and like I said, we should do a vulnerability assessment and do a configuration review of the wireless controllers and access points. So we go back and, and do a configuration review, test the security there, make sure that's hardened and just do whatever we can without actually interacting with the systems because someone's connected to it. You know, it could be a matter of life or death and then, and no one wants that on their hands. So there's cases when you should do a vulnerability assessment instead of, of a penetration test. And so part of the reason it's misunderstood is not everyone goes in that route. Not everyone's worked in offensive security for me. I started out blue team, moved into offensive security, but if I hadn't worked in the offensive security, I really wouldn't have thoroughly understood the threat actor mindset or, uh, you know, just kind of seeing, you know, how easily these things can be hacked into and realizing the importance. And that's the reason it's one of the most misunderstood areas is the lack of experience. And if there's a lot of experienced professionals, but as a whole, most people that are working in security or IT have no experience in that area. So that's one of the reasons it's misunderstood. And I think we just really need to to bring that out there because as far as people that are hiring consultants or contractors or even hiring staff considering these, you need to be an educated consumer. So you really need to, to learn about these different types of 
assessments, at least at the, uh, you know, a high level, knowing what each one does and being able to set goals that's going to benefit your organization for the pen test. You just go do something for compliance. You may be missing out on opportunities for other goals that you need to be focusing on to get the most out of your pen test. We're recording this at the end of August. And as it turns out, you're actually right in the middle of week one at, at Skype. What are you doing over there? Yeah. So I'm the director of services and training. Our services, we're working with customers on like purple team engagements, red team engagements, uh, that type of thing. The product is where you can just get the product itself and run it on your own, or you can have our services to come in and we work with you on the exercises. So one of the big values that we have that's impressive to me and something I've spoke about, I do a talk on building effective attack service management programs and some of the areas that are kind of newer in the industry that I think are advantageous for people to use is like purple teaming because uh, purple teaming, you're testing different type of hacker tools, different TTPs that a threat actor would use and tuning the systems to detect and prevent that. Uh, so you can have like the best in world uh, security tools, but if there's too much noise and you're not able to detect actual attacks, then you know, you're failing. I've performed pen tests before with companies where it's kind of a black box approach. No one knew the pen test was going on. Uh, I was, you know, gained access into the building, slipped into the building, performing a pen test. Was there like 12 hours? Well, I was there and they didn't detect me until 12 hours later. I got a password hash, cracked it, gained access to the system, created a user account, was on there running all sorts of noisy tools because we were getting low on time because Nessus is not something you'd normally use during an adversary emulation or black box pen test because you're not wanting to go detected. We were so short on time, we run out of time. I was running all these noisy tools that normally you should hear and they weren't detected. They didn't know we were there until 12 hours later. If we had been an actual threat actor, we could have stole all sorts of intellectual property, different sensitive information and, and escaped with it. And so they didn't detect us until later on because the person I was working with owned the consulting company and he called his cell phone from one of the phones in a conference room to possibly use for some social engineering later on, some vishing calls. And so he did that. And so they found his name. They knew us from, knew him from the local community. He's part of the Dallas hackers community like myself. And they saw his caller ID and then they kind of figured out who it was. Cause when I created the user account, I just created Phil because I wanted it to be easy for someone to go back and clean up afterwards. I didn't want it to look like a legit account that someone might miss and it's laying out there unused that someone could uh, take advantage of. So that's good. They kind of put two and two together, knowing that's part of the community. They knew me and, and saw that. But like I said, it's 12 hours later before they detected that. So doing things like purple teaming to tune your endpoints is a big uh, improvement because otherwise you've got all this expensive tech and, and staff that's missing some potential attacks. You're a sought after speaker and travel all over the world. I presume people come up to you all the time asking you for advice, um, how to get into the industry, maybe from an offensive security standpoint. What is some of the, the most poignant advice you give these folks? What are you asked most often? Sure, I get asked a lot of questions, but the best advice I could give to someone that's wanting to get in, and this is any part of security or IT, is network. I would focus on networking uh, virtually and in person. You know, you meet people people online, you get to meet them in person. So uh, conferences and the different security meetup groups, there's a lot of hackers associations 
around as well as DEFCON groups, uh, OWASP chapters, and you get more into the more corporate management style, the ISSA meetings that are more blue team centric. And then the, the ISOCA groups, all these different groups are really good to network in and kind of expand your network. Don't just focus on one. So one of the things that I try to do and been making an effort because I gravitate towards the offensive side. So the DEF CON group meetings and the hacker associations are the more are the ones that I like to attend, but I make sure to try to make some ISSA meetings to meet with other people outside of the area that I work in, because that's one way to evangelize offensive security and a good way to network. Because some cases, a hiring manager at an organization may not be going to Dallas Hackers Association, but maybe they go to ISSA meetings. So I'm glad you mentioned the Dallas Hackers Association. You and Andy Thompson are both active in the Dallas Hackers Association. And Andy tells me that the hacking community in Texas is different from other hacking communities. What is it about the Dallas-Fort Worth area or that this particular hacking community that's so special to InfoSec and hacking? I would say we have a very inclusive environment. We're very welcoming to people, all types, and as well as all levels. There are some organizations that if you go to their meetings, you attend the first time. After that, when you come back, you got to be prepared to speak. So that puts a lot of pressure on a new person because uh, one of the organizations that Dallas Hackers was modeled after was that way. The founder of Wirefall had attended these meetings, and I've talked to people who went there. They went the first time, and they're just really, uh, if they're introverted, or a lot of people, you got to go speak and you're, you're new to the industry or trying to break in, that can be kind of difficult with us or with the Dallas Hackers Association. They encourage everyone to speak and it's a friendly environment. Some environments may not be so friendly to beginners. So I'd say really the, how uh, well they encourage the beginners. There's been a lot of people that have launched, you know, their speaking careers. I mean, mm. uh, Andy, myself, Tinkersec, which was used to be part of our community, but he's, he's relocated. A lot of people have kind of got their start there and it's a real welcoming uh, community and, and no one's really judgy. And really, it's interesting because in my opinion, it's probably the one group that has brought more awareness and brought a lot of people into security because for me, I didn't know we had a local DEF CON group until I started attending Dallas Hackers and I found out about DC214 and attended that. And so other people coming into these different meetings, they find out about these different groups, they find about the North Texas uh, ISSA and they attend those meetings. And there for a while, I'm not sure about now, but pre-pandemic, we had two or three meetings per week in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of different types. We had Hack Fort Worth, uh, Dallas Hackers Association. I was running a group called Pwn School, which I rebranded my meetings in Denton as DEF CON 940. We have all these meetings and now there's probably not quite as many, but there's still almost something once a week on security meetups. And the talks, do they run the gamut or, or are they fairly focused? Yeah, they can run the gamut. We had someone talking about how they create a, a, a block or security system for their gun safe using a Raspberry Pi. Uh, there's been people, What? what? How, yeah. how does that, how does that work? I forget exactly how it worked, but somehow or another it controlled the locking mechanism or something or monitored the gun safe using a raspberry Pi. So we have all sorts of maker type talks and, uh, blue team and red team, you know, offensive and defensive type security, different hacking talks. And some people do talks on coding and stuff, just how, how to write code and, uh, different types of development. So it's pretty 
broad focused, although I'd say probably most of it is more oriented around hacking, but then you get into like the ISSA groups. You don't see as much of the offensive security element there. It's more of the defensive side and, and management, but the Dallas Hackers Association, DC 214, DC 940, they have a good mix of offensive security as well as uh, blue team stuff. Back to that Raspberry Pi hack for a moment. Was the Raspberry itself part of the hack or could it have been any kind of Pi? Yeah, it was just part of the the system. It could have been any Raspberry Pi set up to control the gun safe. So I really don't remember if it was just monitor <laughs> yeah. or control the locking mechanism, but that's just kind of some of the things. There was a, There's another guy that goes there that uh, he created some device because his neighbor's dog kept barking. So he set up, he made this device using Raspberry Pi and all this other stuff. If this dog <laughs> <laughs> did that, I'm not sure what the outcome was. I think at one point, he was getting it to de-off their Wi-Fi. Uh-huh. <laughs> so whenever their, their dog would bark and wouldn't shut up, it, they would lose their Wi-Fi. But he may have, and I know that was probably the plan at first, but I forget what he did exactly. But just different little uh, you know projects like this have come out of that. What can we do with a peach cobbler? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we actually had a guy one time do a talk on pirates. Okay. He did a talk on pirates in this one area, just kind of, yeah, it's just the history of these pirates in a certain region, how they operated. Just That was just kind of one of the talks. So it's not always even security related. It sounds like a lively crew, and I'm guessing a lot of uh, MacGyver fans in that crowd. Probably so. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, you've got a lot going on, and we could probably talk to you any which way for many, many more hours. And, and I think testament to that is probably your podcast, The, the Philip Wiley Show. How often does that come out and where can folks find it? And is there anything else you've got coming up you'd want to plug? So yeah, as far as my podcast, it's Philip Wiley Show. Uh, You can find it on all major platforms, including YouTube, and it's available in video on YouTube and Spotify. I've got it distributed to just about every platform out there, at least the most popular ones. And I'm even on iHeartRadio and Pandora. It's very easy to access. And I have a good mixture of people that are kind of sharing technology. And then some of it is people's background stories on how they got started. And one of the things I think is very important. And one of the things I saw with my previous podcast, the hacker factory is sharing these stories of people getting into the industry, help encourage other people. And that's the big thing we need is to encourage others. Sometimes people have a lot of self-doubt and when they see others similar to them doing it, then it encourages them you can find that after the Philip Wiley show. And then also coming up, I'm speaking at Texas cyber summit 28th, 29th and 30th of September. Then I'm speaking in October at B sides, Ottawa. I'm doing a keynote there. B sides, Albuquerque. I'm keynoting there, a keynoting at black hat, Middle East and Africa at Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in November. So that's most of what I got going on. Philip Wiley, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Have a great fall, and we'll talk to you sometime down the road. Yeah, thanks. It was an honor to be on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. 
And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.